I'm Kim Singletary. And I'm Rich Collins with Biz New Orleans Magazine. Welcome to Biz Talks. Each week, we reach beyond the pages of Biz New Orleans Magazine to bring you in-depth conversations with members of the business community. From the names everyone knows to the ones destined to make their mark, we'll dive into the top issues, best practices, successes, and failures of every industry that calls Southeast Louisiana home. On today's podcast, we talk to Stan Harris, the president and CEO of the Louisiana Restaurant Association. New Orleans restaurants, all 1,400 of them, are facing an existential crisis because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Logically, chains with deep pockets are in the best shape to survive the down year, but many mom and pops in NOLA and around the state are holding on by learning to put quality food on the table with less money and fewer employees. But how long can these restaurants survive? And what happens to those former employees who are waiting for jobs to return? The answer may depend on how much more federal and state aid is headed their way in the coming months. We'll talk about all this, plus why you don't hear about restaurant bankruptcies, how artificial intelligence can't saute a piece of fish, and why the restaurant industry is particularly good for the state. Hint, no tax breaks. Here's the podcast. Stan Harris, thank you for being on the podcast. Glad to be here today. Can you explain the size of the restaurant industry in Louisiana and New Orleans? Just give us the metrics to understand how big it is. If you look statewide, we have a, just between nine and 10,000 food service establishments uh, that are licensed by the Louisiana Department of Health as commercial establishments. There's probably 16 or 17,000 permits that are out there, but that also includes all the non-commercial things like nursing homes and schools and prisons and uh, grocery stores and meat markets and any of those types of things. So there's this, there's this uh, entire world of probably 93 to 9,400 restaurants right now. I was curious, where's the line? Does a boudin stand off uh, I-10 in Lafayette count as a, uh, as a restaurant? Well, it, you know, it, it can, especially if it's, if it is inspected like a restaurant, you know, it's typically, it's gotta be commercial. Uh, it's got to be able to serve the public. It typically has to have uh, certain things that qualify it as a restaurant. It doesn't have to have alcohol service, but it typically has to have washrooms and things like that for patrons. And it, it does not require seating, uh, believe it or not. We're seeing a lot of the quick service or what most people would say fast food restaurants today look at redesigning their facilities to limit or eliminate uh, dine-in service. Uh, that's interesting, yeah, because of the circumstances. So, Talk about the economic impact in terms of revenue raised for the state and, and taxes to jobs. If you, if you look at, at restaurant revenue uh, statewide, it's in between 10 and $11 billion that is generated from restaurants. Multiply that out times the taxing rates of state and local, and it's somewhere around a billion dollars of sales taxes that are collected for uh, parish governments, local governments, and the state. Um, that doesn't include the property tax impact. So it's a large collector of sales tax. It has very limited tax exemptions. Uh, for example, there is a limited tax exemption on unfinished products. So for example, if you uh, buy uh, a, a ton of flour, you may not be paying the state sales tax on that. You could be paying the local sales tax, but yet when you turn it into cakes or biscuits or bread, you're charging the retail tax on that and you get a credit for what you've already paid. So that's really the only thing that we have that sustains restaurants. It's 
it, it is a very uh, positive win-win for the state and parish governments because there's no industrial tax exemptions. There's none of the other things that other industries can have access to. Um, and, and, you know, again, this is, this is a, a very uh, simple structured business with a very high fixed cost. So from a standpoint of, of risk, it's a high risk business. It can also be a good reward business. I spent almost 30 years of my career uh, as a restaurateur. So I certainly understand clearly the risk, the reward, and the opportunity that it presents. Because, you know, when you look at, at Louisiana, uh, it's, it's part of our culture, number one, but it's not just how we prepare food here that makes us different. It's what we have to prepare. You know, whether it's the seafood, whether it's game, whether it's anything that we do, we do it a little bit differently than the rest of the country. And I think that's what helps to uh, distinguish Louisiana and make it so highly desirable. The other challenge that we have, too, is when you look at that industry, a 10 or 11 billion dollar industry and employing a couple of hundred thousand people, making it the first or second largest private industry employer in the state. It's not one or two companies. It's thousands of small businesses. When we describe our average member, our average member has 15 to 20 staff members and typically revenue between 750 and a million dollars. So it's not a big business. It's people that work in their business. It's people that are there every day. They're the ones that turn the lights on in the morning and sometimes turn the lights off at night. Right. So you said it was a couple hundred thousand workers and it's maybe one or two. What, what's the other industry that it's uh, neck and neck with? Oh, well, I mean, as far as industries go, government's the biggest employer. And then it, it depends between us and healthcare. How are things statewide compared to New Orleans right now? We're so reliant on tourism. Yeah. Is the forecast better uh, when you get further away from the heavy tourist areas? New, New Orleans, as, as tourism dependent, you know, when we look at, at the, the triggers, you know, we look at the, the airport traffic, we look at our cruise lines not operating, we're not having any corporate meeting business, we're not having any association meeting business right now. So we're struggling to try to find uh, oppor opportunities to, to grow capacity. Uh, the other thing is, is that in New Orleans, a lot of the restaurants here, especially the the legacy restaurants and the historically uh, large restaurant facilities that are located in the tourism areas, they they rely on 30 to 50% of their revenue comes from group sales. Um, so uh, again, when that's not happening right now, they're only generating 50% of maybe 50 or 60% of their revenue. Um, and with a high, high fixed cost, that puts them at a, a strong disadvantage. When you look around the rest of the state, and while tourism is important statewide, it is not as heavily weighted as it is in the New Orleans area. You know, just stepping out of New Orleans into Jefferson Parish, it looks very, very different. But, you know, when we've looked around the state and we've, we've done four statewide surveys since this began, and typically for us, we're looking at 25 to 30% of our restaurants statewide will probably not return. It's the place that's closed. You know, I talked to, to, a, to an interviewer a couple of weeks ago, and they mentioned that they're tracking bankruptcies. Well, most restaurants and bars, they don't file bankruptcy. They just close. You know, there's, there's nothing. They're not going to continue their operation. They're not trying to protect any assets. They're, they're out of money. Uh, they're out of time. So they just move on. When it comes to New Orleans, 
uh, we're projecting probably closer to 50% as long as this continues to stretch out. Because if you look at it, everyone talks about the payroll protection program, and it was a godsend when it was envisioned back in the spring. You know, people were thinking eight weeks of support. Well, now we've had eight weeks of support for seven months of devastation to the to the economy. So, you know, looking at, at the federally supported unemployment, the secondary level of the FEMA unemployment, those are lifelines to our workforce that are really important. But at the same time, that business owner, they still have those rent obligations or lease obligations, property taxes are due, um, paying off the vendors, because these are cash flow generating businesses. And when the cash flow stops, it's, it's like any of us kind of running into a curb with a car, you know, it, it, it stops very abruptly. So did you say uh, you think about 25% will be what we lose statewide, but New Orleans? 20, yeah, 25 to 30% statewide is that. But, but again, the further you get away from New Orleans, um, Louisiana is one of those states that probably 70% of our, of our restaurants are independently owned. Now, that's not including quick service chain, things like that. A lot of states are 50-50, more chain operated and owned by, you know, some people who don't live here. A McDonald's operator in New Orleans is typically a, a franchisee. So that person lives in this community. They work in the community. They invest in the community. So, you know, to me, that's a little bit different than a chain operation from someone that's owned out of Dallas or Houston. And they're making an investment here, but at the same time, um, those those local investments are a little bit more connected to that community. I've heard people say that the crisis is going to favor chains that have deep pockets versus mom and pops that don't. Is that unfortunately the reality? There's no question. When you look at a large uh, operator like Darden Restaurants, Darden was able to draw down an almost billion dollar credit facility when this first began. Um, they've adapted how they structure, and they're one of our members, but they've been able to pay back their credit facility. They have more uh, access to capital. They have more access to liquidity, um, where, you know, when I mentioned that, that mom and pop restaurant that maybe does a million dollars a year, maybe they're floating $100,000 regularly. Well, when that, when that revenue stops, that money dries up very, very quickly. So their access to capital comes from friends and families and investors. You can't typically go to a bank and borrow money to operate a restaurant or a bar. Right. Once you're in crisis like this, no, uh, as much as banks want to support the local restaurant community, it's not a good bet. No. And, and there's very few banks in our community until, until you've proven almost without a doubt that you have a fail safe concept. Uh, and, and even then you're still guaranteeing the debt as the individual who does it. Um, it, it's not something that's easily banked. So, I mean, it's not a good forecast then. I mean, somebody said a few months ago to me that they called it an extinction level event, you know, and it seems dramatic, but I mean, it, it's, it doesn't seem that dramatic when we talk about it at this point. No, it's, it's not, you know, and, and, and I think people have become a little bit uh, immune to the impact of this because, you know, when we look at, at Orleans Parish right now, uh, I mean, you've got 30 to 40,000 hospitality workers that aren't working right now. And those are people who, who are tied to the industry because of their skill set, because of their experience, and because they like doing the work. I mean, they'd like to get back to work. So, you know, we're sitting there with, with decreased demand. Uh, we, have, we have excess capacity right now. 
But when you look at hotels and, and you know, 700 room hotels, 1100 room hotels that are operating uh, with only 200 rooms in their inventory right now, um, they're not uh, able to, to bring more of their people back to work. It's kind of like when you saw the Warren Act notices for some of the hotels where these furloughs were becoming permanent. That's bad news for the restaurant industry as well, uh, because it, it, it means that these major corporations and these investors in these hotels are looking at this for uh, kind of right-sizing their business for the long haul. And, and you know, adding people back, if, if all of a sudden we picked up, you know, a vaccine that works or we picked up some extra capacity here in the city, um, you know, Look, we deal with with Mayor Cantrell and 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 her team regularly. We have a call with her every week. When this started, we were doing three a week with her. Um, hell, the first couple of weeks we did them every day. We appreciate what they're trying to do, but at the same time, we want to continue to remind them that that restoring the economy is going to lift more people and help more people get through this. Because, you know, just telling someone we're protecting you, you need to stay home and not providing additional unemployment or enhanced benefits, that doesn't help them at all. It makes it difficult for them. So, you know, we look at this kind of thing holistically as to how the industry can support its workers. You know, we've we've supported a lot of different activities in there, whether it's food pantries and meal pickups and all these things. And we've created new programs, working with the city, doing a homebound meal program, uh, provided uh, amazing opportunity for about 45 restaurants through the Chef's Brigade uh, for two or three months this year through a FEMA and city-funded program. That kept restaurants alive for that period of time because during their off periods, they were preparing these meals that would go over to Noki. Noki would send them to Revolution Foods, and then they would be packaged and distributed to the homebound. Well, that's a huge number of people. You know, 30,000 people are asking for homebound meals. So, again, it's not necessarily the, the focus of what a restaurant should be doing because we'd really like to be creating those memories and serving guests and all the rest. But the resiliency of the industry, um, you know, we're looking at data right now that says 86, 87 percent of the restaurants have had to reduce staff as a result of COVID. I mean, that's pretty dramatic. You know, that's almost across the board. And the quick service people right now that that have not reopened their dining rooms and are just working through um, the drive through. Their their volumes are staying very, very strong, but at the same time, their costs have inched down just a little bit because they're not staffing as many people to manage that dining room. But we are seeing some wage pressure. We are seeing some commodity price pressure. So uh, the, the other part that you're seeing, too, is is you're, you're looking at the value engineering right now of menus. When you go into a restaurant today, you're not seeing the breadth of the menu that you might have seen uh, last February or January. It it looks very, very different because they don't have as many people to produce that food. They've got to maintain that social distancing in their uh, culinary and food prep operations. So they have different challenges. They're adapting to them, but we still don't know where that ends up. So you brought up something just now that I wanted to ask a little bit more about, which is the resilience side of things. Uh, you know, I don't want to make light of this situation, but there is there is some interesting innovation that's happening. So let's just talk about that for a second. Uh, first of all, when it comes to the different ways the community or uh, the business community and just the community have reached out to try and help restaurants, um, 
through these different programs, the restaurants and the workers. Can what are some of like the the ones that really stand out to you? What are some of the efforts that have happened since March that that deserve mention? Well, I think that if you look at what uh, what Don and Zach Streif have done at at uh, Don Noel and Zach Streif have done at at uh, Port Orleans working with one of their investors from Blue Runner to prepare these meal packages. And they committed to, to giving away a million meals. They've already hit that number. Um, when you look at, you know, the, the, the fact that we've got restaurants and, and the food, the, the supply chain connecting, you know, Natco Foods, one of our, one of our beef and, and food, local food processors that, cuts steak, cuts pork, cuts veal, does that kind of processing. As they saw this start to wind down, they still had contracts to take product. Well, they're providing that product for people to be able to cook off and serve. We had a lot of restaurants that had contracts with food coming in. They wound those down, but they were able to feed their staff, feed their neighbors, feed their friends. That's that's kind of the resiliency of the restaurant industry. You know, when, when uh, I was sitting talking to uh, one of our members, um, Scott Craig, uh, sitting in Francesca uh, a couple of months ago. And Scott owns Katie's and he owns a place in Jefferson Parish called uh, Bienvenue Bar. And then he's got Francesca's by Katie's on Harrison. And he said, you know, I got beat up by this thing early on because I thought it would be just like a hurricane. You know, the, the, the preparation would begin, the rains would come, the wind would come, the water would rise, the water would go, the trash would get picked up, the power would come back on, we'd resupply, we'd work together, and we, and we would be able to have our, our, our feeling of community again. And he said, and it just hasn't happened, and it's been really hard for me to pull myself out of this. But as he said, you know, I never thought I'd be doing crawfish boils outside of my restaurant in the springtime. I never thought that I would be doing the amount of family-type meals um, uh, on a delivery and pickup basis. So it's the innovation that comes through there. The, the other part, too, is there are some areas of our industry that are ripe for uh, innovation and technology, but it's not going to be in the full service area. It may be in some things you don't see. Maybe it's technology and how orders are taken and processed, but it's really not going to be sauteing a piece of fish is something somebody's going to have to do. You know, grilling, grilling that steak, someone's going to have to know the temperature. Uh, I haven't seen artificial intelligence that can produce that. I have seen AI and algorithms help restaurants operate more efficiently uh, with, with a better uh, division of labor. So I think that, that we'll see some of that, but you've got to be have you, you've got to have that cash flow to make those in investments in technology and automation. Um, so again, uh, I think you'll see it more start from the quick service side before it gets to full service, and full service is going to use it for more for efficiency. They're going to look at how they can squeeze a penny or two more out of their margins. I had interviewed somebody a few months ago that uh, owned several different restaurants in the city, and they obviously had to come back with a, a skeleton crew. And what they did was, this is LeBlanc Smith, Robert LeBlanc. They, sure. they put everybody on salary. They had fewer employees, and they gave everybody's overall responsibility for the, the way everything happens in that particular restaurant. You know, it's an experiment, and he didn't want to try and come back the way it used to be done. He wanted to use this as an opportunity to try something new. And so do you feel like there, there's going to be some more experimentation and maybe some, some progress in that regard to better business? Yeah, I think, I think that, that 
everything's really on the table when it comes to innovation. You know, Robert is a is a pretty innovative guy. I know it was painful for them to have to close Mobar and and not be able to to keep that going. But you know, during that time, they opened a hotel with another food service establishment in there. You know, so from from out of the ashes rise the next the next opportunity. But you know, we're we're looking at that at that how do how do we get when you when you take a large restaurant, uh, let's take Arno's in the French Quarter. There's, they have 220 staff members. That's a big restaurant. Commander's Palace, two and a half, 240, 250 people. So in order to operate that full facility at 50% capacity, uh, which items don't you serve? Which are those favorites don't you serve? Which, are, which is that item that I go there? I go there for shrimp pinnacle every time I go to Commander's and they don't have it this time because they've had to re-engineer their menu. That's part of what we've been kind of trying to sell is COVID courtesy, be a little bit more uh, understanding that, that we love, we, we want to serve you. We want you to come out and see us. But at the same time, um, understand that, that we're struggling with some of those things that have made it a challenge for us to operate right now. But yeah, I think we'll see, I think we'll see more innovation. I'm not necessarily certain that it's going to be a sea change that stays permanently, but some of these things that have been undertaken uh, have been have been undertaken to keep people working, to give people that want to come back to work the opportunity to do it. And, you know, we do a, a program, Rich, called Restaurant Legends, where if you've worked in a restaurant longer than 20 years, uh, we do a recognition event for you. And, you know, we've done, as I like to call them, you know, red gravy pizza places in Lafayette that had nine employees that had been there over 20 years, and three or four of them been there 30 years. When we did it at at, at Mr. B's, we had people that had been there the entire 40 years they'd been open. So, you know, a lot of people look out from the outside and they go, well, why would anybody want to do this? Well, people like to work. They like how they're compensated. They like how they're treated. And they really like the flexibility of this industry to be able to, to do that. So it's a very different way of, it may not fit for everybody, but I can tell you, I did it. I started as a, as a dishwasher uh, making a buck ninety an hour a long, long time ago when I was fifteen, and it's just something that got into me. And uh, I went to college and finished college and got right back into the restaurant industry and stayed in it for almost my entire career. So for me, you know, the energy of it is is the driver of it. Uh, you know, we we I used to use a baseball uh, analogy and go, you know, when we I was in the steakhouse business and. You know, we didn't have a steak come back that night. We didn't have a refire or anything else. We call it pitching a no hitter. You know, I mean, that was the equivalent of doing something like that. But you knew when you went to bed that night, if you were successful, you didn't have to wait for a monthly report, a quarterly report, what the stock market did. You knew when you went home and the, and you can see it in the people that do that kind of work. They enjoy that. They, they feel the camaraderie of it. So it's a, uh, it, it's an industry unlike anything else. So let me ask you, there's an interesting, almost cross purposes that I'm, that I noticed. And that's that, yeah, logic says that the capitalized chain restaurants are going to survive a, a cash crunch more than mom and pops. But in New Orleans, it's the locally owned neighborhood restaurants. It's the Katie's and everyone like that, that people are rallying around. So how do you see that shaking out when you factor in all the different forces at work? Which category of restaurant is going to be the winner and loser in this whole scenario? Well, I think I think to your point, I think the, the chain restaurants have less risk because they have more access to capital and liquidity. 
But that independent operator, like we just mentioned, whether it's a Katie's, whether it's a Parkway, any anything along Galatoire's, they're going to adapt to this. They're going to to bring their business down. They may only be doing 25 or 30 percent of the volume that they were doing pre-COVID, but they've adapted their business model um, where you see some restaurants like we've seen in the quarter that are open Friday, Saturday and Sunday. We see some that their extended week is now Wednesday through Sunday. Is that going to be the new normal for us? I, I had a elected official wanted to do a fundraiser on a Monday night and the first 11 restaurants that he checked off are all closed on Monday now. Mm. And he just, he just couldn't believe it that, that those were closed. But I, I, I'm trying to explain to him, I said, we're, we're not normal. I mean, we, you, got, you guys may think you fly back into town, you want to do an event because this is when you have a gap in your schedule. I have places I can take you to, but not the ones that you chose on that first list of 10 or 12 on your checklist. So, yeah, I, I think we're, I think we're going to see this for the long haul. Uh, I think that they are, you know, they're, they're adapting to, to how their business has to look. You know, the, the, the link restaurant group, we work with them uh, and, and watching, you know, they want to get back to their, to their 650 staff members that they had before, but right now they're working for a hundred or so. They're working more limited hours. They have a much more limited menu. And the other part too is you have to be able to maintain your standards. Um, if, if you're used to using the best ingredients and whether you're farm to table or having full traceability or you're buying the best seafood and, and you're using everything that's available to us that makes Louisiana unique, you can't lower that standard. If you lower that standard, then the guest has to wonder where else are you cutting a corner. So they may understand that you maybe you're using a, a cellulose or a paper napkin instead of linen this time, and they'll they'll give you a pass on that. But if you change the experience too much, um, they're going to look what what's the other places that I should be going to instead of this one. So it's a very fickle and a, and a very risk uh, risk driven business. But at the same time, I, I don't think a lot of our people would do it any other way. Right. Uh, just a couple more questions for you. What? Sure. what are being made right now to lobby for more aid at the federal level and if there's any money to be had at the state level? Well, you know, the, the state got some money from the CARES Act and decided to do this Main Street, uh, Main Street program uh, up to $15,000. So that was much more of a, uh, a reimbursement program. And because of the CARES Act restrictions, it was uh, a, a, a very uh, cumbersome process. Uh, for example, to get an EIDL loan from the SBA was about a one-page online application. Uh, this one was 11 screens that you had to go through. You had to upload your tax return. You had to upload your driver's license. So, you know, we, we weren't as nimble. So a lot of those small businesses that this could have helped initially, they probably didn't jump in. But with the media and the discussions about it, I think they were probably able to give away about half that money. Um, getting, getting other state relief, we've got a small, um, a small appropriation in the special session, uh, about $5 million for tourism promotion. We need about 30 million. Uh, but hey, it's a start. I expect that they'll be back again before the regular session next year, uh, to look at the budget because all of our tourism partners are driven by hotel taxes. The bonds that fund the Superdome and the arena and the convention center are paid for with hospitality taxes. And when those taxes are very, very low, it puts those bonds at risk of not being covering their covenants. 
So th- those are, you know, again, some of the challenges we're facing at the federal level. I sit on the National Restaurant Association board and their advocacy strategy committee. We normally meet seven or eight times a year. I think we're up to 30 meetings just since COVID began. Um, we pushed through and got got initially uh, through the, uh, the, the entire CARES Act. We had to come back with a flexibility act that modified the CARES Act, and it had a, a almost u- unanimous bipartisan support. I think that we've been watching the Treasury Secretary negotiate with Speaker Pelosi to try to come up with solutions for this. I think that that on the on the Senate side, they're looking at much more narrow recovery. Um, uh, what uh, what Leader McConnell put forth uh, last week was the Senate version of the Restaurants Act, which would be amazingly helpful for our industry, which would create an industry-specific fund of billions of dollars, about $120 billion, that would help us sustain this, maybe another round of PPP. But, you know, the restaurant people, they're not really looking at what's going on with the city or the community and what that, what what maybe those municipalities need uh, to be able to get any money. You know, we, we've always talked about New Orleans is our big city and Baton Rouge are our big cities, but they didn't meet the 500,000 person threshold. So they weren't able to get any of the direct money out of the CARES Act. They had to apply to the state to be able to get any of that. And of course, where does that put pressure? Public safety, sanitation, cleanliness, all of the things that we rely on to have a great destination for people to visit New Orleans. So, you know, we're continuing to advocate for it. Do I think it's going to happen before the election? I got to tell you, it's pretty doubtful right now because we're, what, seven, eight days before we run up to it. Um, but I would love to see us get something done. I think after the election, we will see some coming together of this. Um, another round of PPP would be a godsend. It would allow us to get people back to work and help some of those folks. But, you know, one of the one of the points of, of differentiation was that that the House plan wanted to take the $600 supplemental unemployment and extend it through the end of January. Well, that money has to be borrowed. So when they talk about 1.8 trillion or 2.2 trillion, that money's borrowed. None of that, none of that's not sitting in a bank somewhere. It has to be borrowed by the federal government. And unfortunately, I think our grandkids will have to pay it back. But uh, again, these are, these are times that no one ever envisioned. So coming up with innovative solutions federally, being able to help our communities uh, sustain themselves, because we're still going to need to have health care. We're still going to need to provide education, transportation and infrastructure, water systems, power systems that are reliable. All of those things take money. And they, sometimes they take the government taking the lead in doing those things. Right. So you, you, you feel like it'll be sometime after November 3rd or November whatever when we start to hear what happens at a federal level if there's going to be more PPP and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I think I think you'll you'll understand that. I mean, and then otherwise, if they can't come to a meeting of minds, then in you know mid to late January, I think you'll see these things move as is the new you know the the House and Senate come back in and and look at this and and figure out what it is that they can agree on. Um, I think the White House in this particular case has been uh, really willing to move a lot higher than they initially were. The initial skinny plan that that. Uh, Leader McConnell put forth was about half a billion dollars, excuse me, about $500 billion, about half a trillion dollars. And they couldn't even get a cloture motion to to call it for a vote. So you needed, you know, you needed eight Democrats to be able to come across and say, let's at least bring it up for debate. Well, that didn't happen. Well, you've taken 500 
billion, which was the Senate plan, and 2.2 trillion, which was the Heroes Act, and you're down to somewhere between a billion, uh, trillion five, and a trillion eight. These are big numbers. I mean, it's just kind of scary. Right. But at the same, but at the same time, yeah, there's going to be some fluff in there. That's how deals get done in Washington. Um, there may not be as much money for fisheries in there, and there may be more money for the National Ballet. I don't know. But ultimately, you're going to have to find what, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that, and I do advocacy work almost full time. We just finished a special session of the legislature. We do advocacy with the New Orleans City Council. It, it's like the Rolling Stones song. You can't always get what you want, right? But if, if you try sometimes, you might just get what you need. And that's how I look at this. If I get 80% of what I need in a program, and there's 15 or 20% left in there that maybe not as palatable as we'd like, it's not perfect, but it's livable and it's acceptable, then you roll with that and, and you take the win and you, you try to take that 20% and put it in a more palatable form going forward. And that's the challenge of advocacy because some people think it's an absolute win. I, I've, I've never had a 100% win on anything I've done in advocacy because it's a negotiated process. Right, right. There's been a focus on hospitality and restaurant workers this year as people realize how dangerous a situation they're in. Do you think that one of the silver linings of this whole experience this year will be efforts to prevent restaurant workers and hospitality workers from being one paycheck away from out on the street? You know, I, I will tell you, and I, I, I look at this just from my own experience. You know, I created that circumstance where to my, the, the people that I worked for and people that I was in business with, I made myself as indispensable as possible. And that creates that opportunity. This is an industry where you don't need an advanced degree. You don't need to have any great uh, skills other than, you know, really the simple stuff, the willing to serve others, work as part of a team, take direction cheerfully, uh, be dependable and reliable and show up on time every day to do your job. And there's really no limit to this. The other part is people outside the industry sometimes look at it and say, why would somebody want to do that? Well, they like that flexibility. I have, I had people that worked for me that worked two jobs because they liked the fact that they could make $800 a week from me and $800 a week from someone else. And that's how they got, that's how they got by. They worked 30 hours a week for me and 30 hours a week for somebody else. I understand it. It may not be perfect for everybody, but that's kind of, it, it's a demand driver in there. You know, I had other people that worked for me three, three days a week and they worked full time somewhere else. I understand that. And it's how people lift themselves up out of there. I can tell you story after story of someone who started with us doing prep work or washing dishes and ended up becoming a manager or a server or a captain and ended up making a six figure income doing this. I mean, it's, it, there really is, you, you have to pick and choose what do you want. I, I always tell people, if you want a huge array of benefits, and, and that's important, important to you, then you have to look for the employer that has that. That's typically going to be a chain. It's going to be a larger independent. It's going to be a hotel. And you may give up a little bit of your income potential in order to get that array of benefits that's important to you. And I think that's, that's, that's the one thing that the hospitality industry offers is a broad away, array of opportunities for people to consider how they want to do it. If you, if you have kids that you need to be home for in the afternoon, maybe working the breakfast shift at one of the hotels and working banquets at lunchtime is what you should be doing so that three o'clock you're free and you can be part of your kid's life. That's one of the things the industry has to offer there. Uh, I think it's going to be 
I think we're going to always see wage pressure. When there's demand for employees, you create wage pressure so that people come back to work. But I've also seen some things where people weren't interested in working by, you know, on their application, they would put, I need $150 a day in hazard pay for COVID. Well, an employer can't pay that right now. Um, so it, you, you got to look at this thing kind of more objectively. I think we're seeing hourly wages rise. I think we've seen demand for great employees rise. I mean, I think that's going to create create some margin pressure for the restaurants as they start to recover from this. But I don't think it's going to go back down. I think you're going to see wages continue to rise. I think you're going to see demand for great staff members and team members continue to rise. And you look at, let, let's go back and look at Smith and LeBlanc. Look at Le, uh, LeBlanc and Smith, rather. Look at his business. What have they been able to do with that? They've created a lot of the people within their organization from within their organization. And that's how I did it in my business. I built my own team of people. I knew that, that we had a high level of trust in how we did it. And look, the, the key for us was there might have been 30 of us in management, but without those other 2,900 people out there doing this every day, and we were teaching them our culture and our value system, and also allowing them to be creative, allowing them to be who, the unique part of who they are. You know, ours is an industry, we take all comers. I don't care what kind, how you identify. I don't care what your hobbies are. I don't care what, what your interests are. We have an opportunity for everybody to join this industry. Thank you. And uh, lastly, what, what's, what's your biggest reason for hope for the industry in New Orleans, particularly uh, looking ahead? And what's your biggest concern? Or let's say, do your concern first and your, and your reason for hope second. Well, my, my biggest concern is that this continues on through the springtime um, and, and beyond and that we don't have a reasonable uh, another round or two of federal stimulus because the state, the state is not going to be able to do it. We're a poor state, so our state doesn't have those resources to be able to do it. And our state has to have a balanced budget, and they constantly are balancing the budget as they go. So, you know, the concern for me is, is not getting another round of federal stimulus because it's going to put so many more of our small businesses at risk. And those are the people, too, that, that launch so many people into the industry. Um, if, if I had to look at the best opportunity, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that we get a vaccine. I'm hopeful that people continue to realize that this is really a thing um, and that they need to, to follow the same hygiene procedures and the same distancing and sanitation things we were doing six months ago to keep us safe. Um, and and uh, stretching this out, I think if, if we can shorten that window where businesses are operating at depressed capacity, um, you know, the, 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 the mayor talked about the possibility going to 3.3 and being able to have inside service in bars. That's a lifeline for them. That, 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 that will help more of these businesses uh, at least have hope that they will have a future. And, and that's the other part that's, that's, that I think is missed sometimes in this is that that bar owner, they may have invested a couple of hundred thousand dollars in their business and it came from friends and family and their personal savings. And when the government says you can't operate, um, well, why am I different than a home store? Why am I different than a big box retailer? Why am I different than a grocery store where people are gathering? I think I can do it. We've always said to the Department of Health and the governor's office, we're the industry that focuses on food safety. So if we can do food safety right, trust us to do sanitation right too. And, and, and let us be part of that. And let's weed out the bad actors and let's deal with the people who aren't compliant. 
but at the same time, create energy for so many of these people uh, that we become the voice for and trying to help them not only get their business back, but bring their team members back to work because that's what's going to sustain us. And that, if you ask me what my opportunity is, I think that's it. Um, the resiliency and getting this industry back going again, it will not happen overnight. It's going to take time. And uh, the, the, the sooner we get going, the better it'll be. Stan Harris from the Louisiana Restaurant Association. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rich. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Biz Talks. If you like what you hear each week, don't forget to rate us and leave a comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. And follow us on social media at Biz New Orleans. For more information or to contact us, please visit bizneworleans.com slash biztalks.